0: and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Please welcome back, Brendan McGuire. Thanks. We talked last time about the way in which the papacy liberated itself from lay control, right? In line with a much broader reform movement in the church in the Middle Ages, the papacy was able to liberate itself to a certain extent from lay control and thus play a role that was directive, that was authoritative in medieval society. And so if we want to define the, the boundaries of the medieval papacy within the broader history of the papacy as an institution, we have to say the papacy that was distinctly medieval was the papacy that was able to play that role, that role of direction, that role of authority within Christian society more broadly. If you wanna look at the the height of the medieval papacy, if you want to look at the medieval pope who exercised most fully the role that people are talking about when they talk about the medieval papacy, the, the guy to look at is Innocent III, right? Pope Innocent III's reign was 1198 to 1216. And if you look at everything that Innocent III accomplished and the role that he was able to exercise within Christian society, you really see the quintessence of what medieval papal ideology was all about. Innocent III was a man who was an expert in canon law. He was a man who was responsible for continuing the reform of the clergy as it had been begun in the 12th century, particularly rooting out abuses such as simony, such as clerical concubinage, other abuses that the medieval papacy was particularly concerned to root out. Innocent III launched multiple crusades against enemies of Christendom, both within and without. Innocent III was a man who truly right truly was the head of western society in his day right and that's really what the medieval papacy represents the medieval papacy represents that era in which the pope was the head of christian society okay now it's no secret right it's no secret that when we get into the early modern period the role of the papacy in christian society was very very different from what it had been in the middle ages none of the things that happened in the early modern period that, that were responsible for the production of of the modern state of affairs, right? That state of affairs in which religion is marginalized within society, and in which any cleric pretty much is, is disbarred from exercising an influence over public affairs. A society in which religion is seen as a matter of personal choice rather than a matter of truth and error, right? That society, that distinctly modern society, could never have come into existence in an era when the papacy played the role that it did in the Middle Ages. And so it's important for us to look at how it was, how it was that the papacy as an institution suffered a catastrophic and marked decline in prestige that marked the end of what we can call with any meaningfulness the medieval papacy. That decline in prestige um, is really evident It's really evident by the end of the 13th century. And it has a variety of causes. Among the trends that we're going to note in the 13th and certainly in the 14th century, among the trends that are responsible for the decline in papal prestige that marks the transition from the medieval papacy to the Renaissance or early modern papacy, among those trends, particularly one will have to note the aggrandizement of kings. The aggrandizement of kings was a trend that took place in many places, but particularly and most notably under the Capetian kings of France. What the Capetian kings of France were able to accomplish throughout the 13th century was a centralization of power and resources in royal hands. All right. Now, that centralization of power in the hands of kings, such as the kings of France, the kings of England, um, the, even the, the kings in the various Spanish kingdoms, kings in, in, well, not so much kings, but different lay rulers in different parts of Germany, right? the centralization of power in the hands of lay rulers, it creates a dynamic right, in which Europe as a whole becomes decentralized, right? as the power of kings becomes enhanced, as the ability of kings to act independently, and as the, the theory of a royal sovereign exercising absolute authority over his territory, as all of those things gain steam in the 13th and 14th century, the ability of the papacy to exercise a directive role in European politics and European affairs, even in religious affairs, becomes thereby diminished. Now, we see the extent of this diminishment most clearly in the reign of the famous Pope Boniface VIII. Pope Boniface VIII's reign was 1294, to 1303. And in the reign of Boniface VIII, we see all kinds of evidence of the decline of papal prestige in this period. Uh, Boniface VIII was a fascinating guy. His name prior to his elevation to the papacy was Benedetto Caetani. He was a member of one of the most prominent Italian families. He had a a distinguished record as a papal diplomat prior to his elevation to the throne of St. Peter. He was a man steeped in the canonical traditions of the medieval papacy. In fact, uh, the the canonical scholarship of Pope Boniface VIII is still very influential in the study of Western canon law. If you go to get a doctorate in Western canon law, even today, you're studying a lot of the writings and legal opinions of Pope Boniface VIII. So he was definitely an able man, a man with diplomatic and practical experience. But in many ways, we can see Boniface VIII as a man kind of... um, living in an era where he's not quite at home. Boniface VIII is like a man out of time. He's still a believer in the ideals of the medieval papacy, and yet he's living in a context in which times have changed dramatically, and he's not prepared to deal with it. Boniface VIII's elevation to the papal throne, one has to note—is it's a little bit strange, it's a little bit irregular, because his predecessor actually resigned. Boniface VIII's predecessor was the famous uh, Pope Celestine V, who you may be familiar with. Celestine V was a very holy man, a devout hermit and an ascetic, who was elevated to the throne of St. Peter because of his holiness. In fact, uh, Celestine V barged into a, a conclave, speaking under divine inspiration, and told the College of Cardinals... I this conclave that effectively they were sinning by spending two years in a deadlock. Right? For two years, the Catholic Church was deprived of its visible head on earth by cardinals who were locked in a, you know, a political deadlock where neither candidate could obtain two-thirds of the vote. The, the hermit, of course, his words stung the hearts of the cardinals to repentance and they turned to the hermit and they said, okay, fine, we'll elect you. <laughs> And that man was Celestine V. Now Celestine V, despite his holiness, he was not a man of affairs. He was utterly ill-equipped to serve as Pope. Right? And, and he knew it and everybody else knew it. And so after several months as Pope, in 1294, uh, Celestine V was talking to various cardinals, including cardinals who were well-versed in canon law, like Benedetto Caetani himself. Uh, and he was basically asking the question, is it legally possible for me to resign this office? I'm totally ill-equipped to hold it. I'm not capable of dealing with affairs in a way that the vicar of Christ on earth has to. I'm not capable of dealing with kings. I'm not capable of dealing with cardinals even. I just want to go be a hermit. I I just want to go back to my cave. And so they said, all right, fine. No, legally speaking, you can resign. Benedetto Caetani was partially responsible for telling him, no, legally speaking, there's really no problem with you stepping down from the papal throne. So Celestine V steps down from the papal throne. There's another conclave held. Benedetto Caetani is elected, right? Takes the name Boniface VIII. Boniface VIII immediately grabs his predecessor and throws him in jail. <laughs> right. now, it sounds mean, right? It sounds mean, but it was very, very important that he do that, right? It was very important that he do that because Boniface VIII was not a man without enemies. There were various factions, both within the the kind of strange internecine politics of Italy, and within Western Europe more generally who had a grudge either against the papacy as an institution in this period, or particularly against him. The Caetani family was, it, had, it had very powerful enemies in this period. And so Celestine V would be uh, a very dangerous thing to have loose if you think about it, during Boniface VIII's reign. If his enemies got a hold of the previous pope, they could easily set him up as an anti-pope or try to convince the world that his resignation was coerced, or you know, do all kinds of things to undermine the legitimacy of Pope Boniface VIII. So the kind of custody of his predecessor was very important to Boniface VIII, but it just didn't look good when the guy died you know, in custody. It just, it just kind of doesn't look good when that happens. Boniface VIII was a man living in changed times. The, the power of kings to flout papal commands in the reign of Boniface VIII is absolutely shocking to a student of the period. When, when you're used to the 13th century and you're used to the way a, a pope like Innocent III was not to be trifled with at the early end of the 13th century, right? or even his predecessors in the period of the Gregorian Reform when popes were fighting for their authority, a pope like Gregory VII could bring a German emperor to his knees in repentance. When you're used to those precedents, right, to see what happens in the reign of Boniface VIII is really going to shock you. Uh, Boniface VIII was concerned about the way in which the French and English kings were taxing the clergy without papal permission. France and England are virtually always at war in the Middle Ages. Uh, if that's ever a, a quiz question that my students come across, oftentimes uh, the safest thing to say is France and England were at war, right? Because they, they, they almost always are, right? Now, you know, so, so of course in this period, the king of France, Philip the Fair, Philip IV, uh, was very, very interested in taxing the clergy. Now, taxing the clergy was not without precedent in the history of Capetian France. Uh, even saintly kings taxed the church. Saint Louis the IX had been given special permission to tax the church to fund his crusading expeditions. Uh, of course, even Pope Innocent III had given permission back earlier in the 13th century for kings to tax the church uh, to fund crusade, and, and the wealth of the church had been given to, you know, really put these expeditions um, in, in a place where they could accomplish something on behalf of all of Christendom. So the, taxing the clergy is not something unheard of, right? But for a king to decide to tax the clergy in order to fund a war that was not for a holy cause, that was not defending Christendom against an enemy, and most especially to fund a war that was not papally sanctioned, that was a dangerous precedent that Boniface VIII did not want to allow, right? And so in 1296, Boniface VIII issued a papal bull that would set in motion a chain of events that would bring the papacy to its knees. Boniface VIII issued this papal bull in 1296. The title was Clericis Laicos. And in this bull, Boniface VIII pronounced the theory that had always been held throughout the Middle Ages about the relationship between popes and lay rulers. He simply said kings are not allowed to tax the clergy without papal permission. That wasn't a radical thing for him to say. And yet the context had changed. The times had changed so dramatically that kings were able to flout the will of popes. And so the the response from Philip the Fair was very interesting. Uh, Philip the Fair simply said, Okay, all right, I got you, I got you. We're not allowed to tax the clergy without papal permission. Okay, I got you. Um, No more church funds are going to Rome. That's it. Now, the papal curia could not function without the funds that came to it from all over Europe. Right? And, and the church in France was one, of the, it was one of the largest countries in Western Europe at the time. Certainly, uh, the elimination of that source of income was absolutely crippling to the papacy. So Boniface VIII has to make a concession. Right? He has to make a face-saving concession, and he does. His face-saving concession is to say, okay, okay, fine, fine. Um, clergy can make voluntary contributions to the king. Philip the Pharisee says, oh, okay, that's just what I want. All right, everybody can make voluntary contributions <laughs> to the king. Right. So round one, who wins? The king. All right. Times have changed. Times have definitely changed here. Things get a little bit calmer during the period of the Jubilee year. The great Jubilee year of 1300 was a time when appearances seemed to indicate that all was well. Pilgrims came from all over Europe to receive the, the indulgence that was offered. Um, you know, kings sent messages of, of fealty and submission to the Pope. And it may have been tempting for Pope Boniface VIII to take appearances for reality in the year of the Jubilee. Right? But we see evidence immediately in the following year, in 1301, that appearance and reality were two different things. Right? In 1301, Philip the Fair dared to arrest the Bishop of Pamiers. He was a guy by the name of Bernard Cesse. Bernard Sesse was the Bishop of Pamiers, which was a newly created diocese. This was a diocese that had been just created by Boniface VIII himself in his pontificate. Right? So this guy is, is arrested, by Philip the Fair, under various charges. Uh, Philip the Fair liked to um, give a whole battery of charges whenever he arrested somebody. So uh, you don't even have to know the particular case; you, you can you can list off the charges. Uh, it was uh, sodomy was always one of them, fornication was one of them, simony was one of them, um, idolatry was sometimes on there, heresy, all, all kinds of things. Right? So Bernard Cesaire is arrested by Philip the Fair. He somehow had fallen afoul of the French king. And Boniface VIII protests. Right? Boniface VIII protests with another papal bull, which was entitled, Ausculta fili." Ausculta fili. Right, In these imperious words, Boniface VIII urged the king to listen, right? to recognize that the pope was above the king, that the pope was the father of all of Europe, right? that the king was stepping out of line, by transgressing church law by transgressing the will of the pope. Right, and so what happens? Right, what happens? Remember, times have changed. Philip the Fair, instead of being humbled and chastened and scared by Ausculdufili, Philip the Fair basically says, "All right, fine. If you want to mess with me, I'll mess with you." And Philip the Fair drew up in response to Ausculdufili a series of charges against Pope Boniface VIII himself. Pope Boniface VIII was charged with heresy, with idolatry, with sodomy, with simony, with various other things, and particularly he was charged with transgressing the historic prerogatives of the most Christian king of France. So now the gauntlet has been thrown down, Boniface VIII's response was one of the rhetorical masterpieces of the period. His response was the famous bull of 1302, entitled Unam Sanctam. Unam Sanctam. Everybody can see that? Okay. So Unam Sanctam is a papal bull that's often misread. It's often taken as a red herring by casual students of the period. When you read Unam Sanctam, you find therein the most rhetorically intense expressions of papal authority ever issued by a sitting pope you find here in um, almost out-of-control rhetoric about the nature of papal authority. Now, there's a reason for this. There's a reason for the overheated rhetoric that Boniface VIII chooses to employ in this context, and, and it's obvious to somebody who kind of understands the context. Boniface VIII is in a situation where it's not clear whether he has any effective authority to wield at all. It's not clear whether the moral and spiritual authority of the popes has simply gone out of existence, Right? and so he summons up and brings to bear every canonical precedent that he can think of in this bull unam sanctam and he asserts right with a confidence that you know is more rhetorical than real that papal authority is superior to temporal authority that the spiritual sword is higher than the temporal sword that popes have authority over all of Christendom including the kings right now The reason why I say this bull is often misread by casual students of the period is this. Every so often you find it stated, either in a a high school textbook or in an encyclopedia or in some other popular source, you find it stated that Boniface VIII's reign represents the height of papal authority. Because somebody reads Unam Sanctum and they say, Wow, whoa, we don't see this in the time of Innocent III, or holy smoke, we don't even see this in the time of Gregory VII. this, This is intense. You certainly don't see this in the time of... Yeah, I mean, even, even for crying out loud, somebody like, um, who am I thinking of? Somebody like Innocent IV, you don't even see something like this. Right? So this must be the height of papal power. This must be the apex of papal authority. That's a mistake. Right? The intensity of Boniface VIII's rhetoric is due precisely to the fact that we're entering the nadir of papal authority. We're entering a period in which the Pope's ability to wield any sort of directive authority over kings or lay leaders of Europe is, is really entering into question here. Right? That's why the rhetoric is so strong. That's why the rhetoric is so intense. Right? And indeed, Philip the Fair wants to play this game to its conclusion. Right? Philip IV is confident that the, in this new context, there's basically very little that the Pope can do to him. Right? So Philip IV, in response to Unam Sanctum, convened the Estates General of France. Everybody knows in general what what that means, to convene the Estates General of France. It means you summon the representatives of the three estates, the nobility, the clergy, and the commoners. And the interesting thing about the Kingdom of France in this respect is that the Estates General was not something that met regularly, really at any period in the history of of the Kingdom of France. Um, it, It wasn't something like the Parliament of England or something like that. The Estates General only met in times of crisis, in times where extra funds were needed for some emergency or something like that. So summoning the Estates General here is really a brilliant political move by Pope Philip IV, because the impression... Sorry, did I say Pope Philip IV? Wow. Freudian slip. King Philip IV of France, right? It, it's a brilliant move by King Philip IV, right? Why? Because he wants to give the impression to Christian Europe that this is not a battle of king against pope. He wants to give the impression to Christian Europe that there's an entire nation assembled against Pope Boniface VIII. He wants to give the impression to Christian Europe that the nation of France speaks with one voice, that the nation of France speaks with the voice of the king when it accuses Pope Boniface VIII of being an unworthy pope, when it accuses Pope Boniface VIII of overstepping his bounds. Right? In response to the, the convention of the estates general, and the, basically the, the tuning up of a full-scale propaganda machine on the, on the part of King Philip IV, um, there's basically very little that Boniface VIII can do except resort to the age-old trump card, the age-old nuclear option. Which was excommunication. In the past, the threat or the employment of excommunication had been the one spiritual weapon that had allowed popes to reign in unruly, obstinate, rebellious kings and emperors in Western Europe. I mean, think of the history of, of kings and emperors in the Middle Ages who were subject to the penalty of excommunication. It included some of the greatest German rulers, Frederick Barbarossa, Frederick II Hohenstaufen. It included many of the kings of England. It included uh, the famous King John. Right? It had included many, many figures in the history of medieval politics. You know, you know, Many, many cases in which excommunication, that last resort, was the one thing that popes could resort to. So Boniface VIII decided, while he was spending the summer at Anani in 1303, that excommunication was the way to go. He had drawn up a bull of excommunication at Anani when he was surprised in his residence by a French army. Philip the Fair decided to do something unprecedented. His, one of his chief ministers, Guillaume de Nogaret, led a, a group of French troops down to Anani. They surprised the Pope in his bedchamber at night. Right? They placed before him a statement of the charges against him and a letter of resignation, and they demanded that the Pope resign. If not, they threatened to kill him. Right? Boniface VIII, to his credit, refused to resign. He offered his neck to the soldiers. He said, fine, you can cut my head off. I won't resign. They beat him up pretty severely. Right? He would not resign the papacy. Uh, the following day, the citizens of the town came in and liberated him somewhat indignantly from this, this little troop of, uh, of French soldiers. Right? But the damage to papal prestige had been done. Right? Basically, Pope—sorry, uh, I keep saying Pope. Basically, the King of France, Philip the Fair, had been able to flout papal directives. He had been able to flout papal authority with impunity. Right? So what happened? Uh, barely a month later, Boniface VIII died of his ill treatment. He died, presumably, of the, uh, the beating he had suffered, and plus the, just the, the humiliation of having been outmaneuvered by Philip the Fair. Right? The point has to be made. This is the kind of thing that never could have happened in another age. This is the kind of thing that never could have happened in the 12th century, or, or even in the 11th. I mean, think, think of 1077, when Pope Gregory VII had one of the German emperors kneeling in the snow for three days, begging for forgiveness. and to be relieved of his excommunication. The social and political effects of excommunication in the case of a king apparently no longer applied. And when that's the case, you have a situation where there's absolutely nothing stopping these kings from acting with impunity, and there really is no effective way in which the popes can play the role that they used to play in European society. Now, the conclave after the death of Pope Boniface VIII. It yielded uh, one pope who was pope for less than a year, right? but then his successor was the famous Clement V. right? Now, the reign of Clement V is, is interesting. Uh, Clement V was chosen as a, a sort of a, a compromise candidate after all of this controversy had taken place. It's often asserted that Clement V was sort of a French lackey that he was simply a Frenchman who decided to make the papacy an appendage of the French monarchy. That's not exactly the case. Clement V had been the Archbishop of Bordeaux in his education, in his upbringing, in his background. He was definitely French. However, as Archbishop of Bordeaux, he was not a French subject, was he? Gascony, at the beginning of the 14th century, belonged to whom? It belonged to the kings of England. So he was an English subject. All right. And, most importantly, he had no previous connections with the Papal Curia. So Clement V was chosen as a, a kind of a compromise candidate. He, he didn't have political allegiance to Philip IV. He didn't have political allegiance to the English uh, throne. I, I mean, he, he had political allegiance to the English throne as a subject, but culturally and linguistically he was not English. Right? So his associations with England were weak. His associations with France were weak politically because he wasn't a French subject, right? And his associations with the papal throne had been weak. He wasn't a curial figure. He wasn't one of these papal functionaries, right? So Clement V was chosen, therefore, to be a sort of neutral compromise candidate to restore the prestige of the papacy. Uh, now, Clement V, the, the key thing is he never really makes it south of the Alps. Uh, he, <laughs> he was elected in 1305. And... Normally, when a, you know, an archbishop or a, a member of the episcopacy who didn 't live in Italy was elected to the papacy, you give them a little grace period for them to travel down to Rome. It, it takes some time you don 't want to cross the Alps in the wintertime you 'd prefer to cross in the summer. Um, you know it takes some time to sort of pack your things and you know they didn 't have trains back then or anything like that. Uh, but Clement V just never makes it there. Right? He was an aged man he was a sickly man. His health was not necessarily the best, and he just didn't really want to go through the rigors of a journey crossing the Alps. So he lived at a number of different places, in Gascony and then elsewhere in the south of France after his election to the papacy. Um, And then finally, it became clear that there was going to be a council held at Vienne in France in 1311. There's going to be a council at Vienne, and so at that point, Pope Clement V said, fine, the heck with it. If we're going to have a council at Vienne and I'm going to be there, I might as well not bother going down to Italy until after the council. So I'll just take up residence here in France. And so he took up a semi-permanent residence at a city near Vienne, namely the city of Avignon. Little could anyone have imagined what would ensue as a result of Pope Clement V's residence at Avignon. Um, Avignon was simply a location that was convenient for Clement V. He had absolutely no intention of moving the papal see from Rome to Avignon. He remained officially the bishop of Rome. The popes, all throughout the time of their residence in Avignon, remained bishops of Rome. Of course, that's, that's what makes you the pope, is the fact that you're the bishop of Rome. Right? Nevertheless, this began a period in which the popes were resident in Avignon for almost 70 years. Right? He took up residence at Avignon in 1309, two years before the council. Right? And he and his successors after him would live at Avignon from 1309 all the way to 1377. Now this period, known as the Avignon Papacy, or called in many sources the the captivity of the papacy, the Babylonian captivity of the papacy, this is a very, very interesting period in papal history. This is a period in which, for a variety of reasons, papal prestige continues to slide lower and lower and lower. Uh, The 14th century was, in every conceivable respect, the nadir of the papal office. You see, you witness for the first time in the 14th century, public assaults on the papacy that would have been inconceivable in previous centuries. Um, this is the age of, of course, Marsilius of Padua, right, the famous Italian thinker. Uh, Marsilio of Padua wrote uh, his text called Defensor Pacis in 1324. And there's a a specific context to Defensor Pacis. It has to do with papal involvement in the election of a German emperor. But to make a long story short, Marsilio of Padua's text, Defensor Pacis, which was read widely throughout the learned world of Europe at the time, it basically made the argument that all the problems in European politics were caused by papal involvement. He went further to question the very foundations of the papacy as an institution in a way that would have been unthinkable in previous times. In very articulate terms, he argued, maybe the papacy is is simply of human institution, the papacy as we know it, and, and maybe it should simply be abandoned, done away with, and the world would be a better place. We could all hold hands and sing Kumbaya, as long as there was no pope. No articulate defender of the papacy emerged in this period. But one can name several very articulate opponents of the papacy in the 14th century. Everybody's heard of Dante, right? Everybody's heard of Dante Alighieri. Uh, I mean, Dante Alighieri's work De Monarchia was basically a screed against papal involvement in politics. This text was on the um, Index of Forbidden Books until the 20th century. Um, One can also think of William of Ockham. Many of you might know William of Ockham, the famous nominalist, a Franciscan philosopher. Also a bitter, bitter opponent of the papacy. Right? and uh, one of the most eloquent and kind of rhetorically uh, accomplished attackers of the papacy in this period. So no articulate defender of papal authority emerges. The old model of the papal monarch, the pope as father of Europe, the pope as head of Western Christendom, that model is being dragged through the mud in the period of the Avignon papacy, and no one's there to rescue it. Right? Now, I don't want to give you the impression that that all is necessarily dark. The Avignon Popes, were, they were doing a lot of things while they were resident there. Pope John the Twenty-Second, for example, was famous for inaugurating great, great missionary efforts to far-flung lands. Uh, the, you, you had direct papal involvement and funding for missionary efforts on an unprecedented scale in Africa and in the Far East and other places in the reign of the, you know, the famous Avignon Pope John the XXII. Um, but there's a set of developments that are going on very much below the radar here, that are going to have catastrophic consequences. Um, underneath the surface of things, while the popes were resident in Avignon, the papal bureaucracy was growing and growing and growing. And there was a reason for that. All right? The Avignon popes stood in great need of revenue. Maintaining their residence in Avignon was very, very expensive. All right? Maintaining the great missionary efforts that they were involved in was very, very expensive. And so the popes were seeking new sources of revenue. Now, their way of doing that was reserving to the papacy uh, the gift of benefices. Right? Everybody knows what a benefice is. Right? A, a benefice is a clerical position. Right? The notion of a benefice is, is somewhat foreign to us, uh, but it's very much part and parcel of the way the secular clergy was structured, not only in the Middle Ages, but even in the early modern period. And that goes for Protestant clergy as well. Anybody who's ever read a Jane Austen novel knows how important it is for a clergyman to have a a benefice. Benefices are very, very important. A benefice was a clerical position that had an income attached to it. That's the simplest way to put it. Now, for the most part, in the high Middle Ages, benefices were in the gift of local bishops or lay lords. So for example, you're a very powerful count, you're a very powerful lord, you might have in your gift several um, very plush benefices. Being the pastor of a certain church, being a canon over here, uh, being the abbot maybe over here. So if you have the, the third son of your cousin uh, who doesn't have anything to do, he might become the abbot over here in exchange for a nice donation, whatever. Right? What the Avignon papacy sought to do was assert control over the giving of benefices. Right. Now, this was for a variety of reasons. On the one hand, this falls in line with the reforming ideals of the medieval papacy generally. Right? The idea is that when things are under lay control or when things are basically outside of papal control, all sorts of abuses creep in, particularly the, the abuse of simony, right? and the popes were intent on stopping this. Right? So the, the papacy is going to assert control over the giving of benefices. There's another motive, though and it is the, the motive of income that I mentioned earlier. The Avignon papacy was very much hard up for funds in this period, and so if the, if the papacy becomes the clearinghouse of benefices, right, then, the, then the papacy becomes, justly so, the recipient of donations from those who are given the benefices. Right? The only problem is if you're gonna process applications for benefices all over Europe, you're gonna need a large bureaucracy you're going to need a bureaucracy that the popes can't necessarily oversee. Right? So the pope, what, what happens is the pope in the Avignon period becomes more of a CEO. Right? When I say CEO, I'm thinking deliberately of Bobby Bowden. Um, I don't know if anyone gets that, but uh, <laughs> somebody gets it. Uh, Bobby Bowden in his later years, never, he was the head coach at Florida State, he, ne- he never called plays from the sideline. He just kind of stood there and watched the game, just like the fans. Uh, and uh, of course, it, it, I mean, yeah, it, it, was, it was no secret that he had given up play-calling duties because he didn't want to be bothered with play-calling. But he described himself as being, quote-unquote, more of a CEO, right? The Avignon Popes, in some sense, become more like CEOs in this, in this way. When you have a burgeoning bureaucracy... You can't oversee every department. You can't have direct control over what's going on everywhere in the papal curia, because the papal curia gets huge as they're processing tens of thousands of applications for benefices. I mean, some of the Avignon popes, in relatively short reigns, would process 30,000, 60,000, 75,000 applications for benefices. It's a lot of paperwork, right? So with all that paperwork, you get a huge bureaucracy Everyone in Washington understands bureaucracy, right? I don't have to get into the nitty-gritty details. You can envision it, right? Huge bureaucracy that the popes can't necessarily control, right? And so what you have is the heads of departments, right? Who were generally members of the College of Cardinals. They begin to to be able to act with a certain independence, right? A certain independent-mindedness that becomes problematic. It, It has been argued, and and Ullman makes this argument very strongly that the, the College of Cardinals develops what he calls an oligarchic mentality during the Avignon period. Right? So that during the Avignon period, the College of Cardinals develops this idea that they, as a group, are kind of ruling the Church. And the Pope is, in some sense, a functionary or an employee of theirs. Right? Now that's a problematic development. That's a development that f- furthers the slide of papal prestige, and, and it furthers the, this decline of the Pope's ability to act like a monarch, to act like a ruler, to act like the father of Western Christendom. So uh, look, at, look at it this way. As the cardinals get comfortable with this oligarchic mindset, strange things start to happen. Remember, the cardinals are also, of course, responsible for the election of the pope. Right? And so who are they likely to elect? They're likely to elect someone who's not going to give them trouble. Right, who's not going to mess around with this comfortable oligarchic system of theirs. And so one sees in the Avignon period the development of this custom of pre-electoral pacts, right, which is a very problematic thing. Uh, so you know, say nine of us are cardinals, you know, we all get together, and uh, we say, okay, hey, you know, Frank over there, you get to be the pope, right? we'll pick you this time, But you have to sign something saying that you'll make me the head of this department and you'll make him the head of this department and and you you won't jeopardize our authority and this, that, and the other respect. And Frank signs it and then, okay, Frank, you're elected, now you're the Pope. And we're still going to think of Frank as one of us, right? He's one of the boys, right? He's not going to get in our way or mess around with things. What this does to the old ideal of of papal monarchy is is, is basically destroys it, right? No Pope dares to step outside uh, or to, to mess with this oligarchic system that the cardinals become very comfortable with in the Avignon period, right? Now, during the Avignon period, it's no secret that residence in Avignon is damaging to the prestige of the papacy, right? It's also no secret that residence in Avignon is damaging to the city of Rome itself. Can you imagine what happens to the city of Rome when the papal court is removed from it in the 14th century, right? The, the, the removal of the papal court results in economic devastation and depopulation in the city of Rome, Uh, St. Peter's Square, for example, had had grass that was waist-high during the residency of the popes in Avignon. If if you walked into St. Peter's Square, you'd have to brush aside grass that probably had ticks on it, had goats grazing in there and stuff like that, walking around. The absence of the popes from Rome was devastating to Rome. So, in light of all of these things, one begins to see a great deal of public pressure towards the end of the Avignon period, for the popes to return. Now, the pope who finally does return to Rome is the famous Pope Gregory XI. Gregory XI was influenced by many people, including the very articulate and persistent Catherine of Siena, to return to Rome in 1377. Now, when he gets back to Rome, he sees the state of things. He he gets back to Rome, he he says, oh my gosh, this place is horrible. It's fallen into rack and ruin. I'm leaving. I'm going back to Avignon. Uh, And then he died. So, not going to say more about that. But anyway, uh, his death in Rome is important, though. That's why we talk about his death in Rome being very, very significant. Why? Because the custom at the time, the custom and enshrined in, in legal rules and everything, was that wherever the pope died, that's where the conclave had to be held. So, there are some medieval popes who die in, in far-flung places. Some of them die in southern Italy. Some of them die in Naples. Uh, you know, some of the Boniface VIII the dies in Anagni, right? Popes die in strange places. Uh, and when they do, that's where the conclave has to be. That's where the cardinals have to meet. So when Gregory eleventh the, the dies in Rome, what that means is the conclave has to be in Rome. Okay, so the cardinals come from the four-corner... Well, not really from the four... They come from one corner of Europe, and that's Avignon. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> the, the cardinals come, and they all meet in Rome, right? And while they're meeting in conclave to elect a successor... To, to uh, Pope Gregory the Eleventh, a Roman mob gathers outside, and they're howling and screaming as only a Roman mob can do. They're lighting things on fire and uh, demonstrating. I mean, it, it's like the, the the Altamont Rock Festival in 1969 or something like that. Uh, I mean, it's it's crazy. It's they're not showering, you know. they <laughs> I mean, yeah, is, was there. You were there at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's it, it's absolutely out of control. Now, what's their demand? Their demand is that the cardinals elect a Roman. Right? They want the cardinals to elect a Roman as Pope because that's the only way they feel that they can guarantee the papacy will stay in Rome. They know that Gregory XI was planning to leave. They know that nine out of ten cardinals would take the papacy out of Rome immediately. Right? And they also know that that would, be, that would ensure, effectively, the economic and social death of the city of Rome. All right. And so they're howling for a Roman to be elected. Now, a key point has to be made. The, the, the mob is not asking the conclave to elect an Italian as Pope. Why, why is that distinction crucial? Because in the Middle Ages, there was no such identity as an Italian. Italian national, the, the identity of being an Italian is basically a 20th century thing. There was no such thing as an Italian in the 14th century. You know Naples and southern Italy and Sicily, at times had at, you know, at various times in in the history of the peninsula had more in common with the Arab world or the Byzantine world or with Spain, than they did with Italy, right? And of course in the northern Italy, every everything was was politically fragmented. At t- various parts of what is today in northern Italy were at times either German influenced or under the control of the French or under the control of various other royal houses. Right? There was no such thing as a politically unified Italy in this period. So the mob is demanding a Roman. Right? Now, what the, what the cardinals do right, is, is the, the, they settle in their election on a guy who's not a Roman. They settle on electing the Archbishop of Bari. Right? Now, to placate the mob, what they do is they say, okay, th- this mob is going to kill us. If we, don't, uh, if we don't tell them that, that we elected a Roman. So what they do is they take an, an elderly cardinal who was from Rome and they kind of prop him up in his chair and they show him to the crowd and say, hey, we elected this guy. And the crowd goes, yay, let's go drink some wine and they all go home happy. Right? Then the cardinals are able to escape. Right? But the next day they had crowned as Pope and acknowledged as Pope in St. Peter's, the Archbishop of Bari who took the name Urban VI. Right? Now this is an interesting situation, right? It's very, very clear that the choice of Urban VI was not a choice made under duress. It was not a choice made under the duress imposed by the mob. Why? Because the mob was demanding a Roman, and they had to pretend to elect a Roman in order to please the mob. So this guy was not the product of an illegitimate election that was influenced under duress. That's pretty clear, right? However, Almost as soon as he becomes Pope, the Cardinals decide that they don't like him. All right. This guy, the Archbishop of Bar, he had not been a member of the College of Cardinals. They hadn't really worked with him before. He was chosen as a, another one of these compromise candidates. He was chosen as somebody who didn't have ties to the French kingdom, also didn't necessarily uh, have ties to uh, you know, other, other political interest groups at the time. He had been associated with the Curia in Avignon, and that's, that's interesting. It, it may have been the Cardinal's intention to elect a man who would take, the. in fact, it's almost certain they wanted to elect a man who would take the papacy back to Avignon. Urban VI, he had spent most of his life, most of his adult life, living and working in Avignon. Right? So they thought, oh, he's comfortable there, he'll probably take us back there and we'll be fine. Right? But it becomes very, very clear when Urban VI is elected, A, that, that he has no intention of doing any such thing. That's why he calls himself Urban. I'm staying here in the city, I'm staying here in Rome. Right? It also becomes very, very clear that Urban VI um, has a tin ear. He's not, he doesn't have a very good political sense. He's not very good at dealing with people. Right? So he, he's basically elected and he becomes kind of a bull in a china shop type figure almost immediately. Right? His correspondence with the cardinals becomes very strident, almost abusive. They don't like him, he doesn't like them. Why? Because he wants to function like a papal monarch. And the cardinals are saying, no, we've had this comfortable oligarchic arrangement now for as long as anyone can remember. Right? For, for almost 70 years, the papacy has been resident in Avignon, the College of Cardinals over the course of that time has become increasingly important in the management of the church. And now this guy's elected and he wants to throw his weight around? Who does he think he is? The Pope? Right? <laughs> so right away, it becomes apparent that the working relationship between Urban VI and the College of Cardinals uh, is is just bad. It's very, very bad, and it gets so bad that the College of Cardinals l- looks for a way out of having this guy as pope. They're, We're not going to be stuck with this guy for the rest of his natural life. Uh uh-uh. It's not working. Now the problem is there's no way to depose a pope. Right? You can't depose a pope. Um, kings have tried. Emperors have tried. Um, there's, you, you can't really do it. it it's, there's just no legal precedent for doing that. What is the one thing you can do, though? You can undermine the legitimacy of his election in the first place. right? You can say, he, oh, his, his election was null and void. And that's the route that the cardinals choose to go. Right? They say, ah, okay, we can't depose him, right? we can't rip him off his throne, but we can say that he was elected under duress. And that's precisely what the cardinals tell the world. Right? They send a letter out to all bishops, to all universities, to all learned and literate circles, to the kings and and rulers of Europe, saying, We elected this man because of the pressure of the mob. Now, there's tremendous evidence that that's not the case, as we've discussed. But nevertheless, this is the only way out for the cardinals. It's the only way out of a relationship that they see as being not workable. So the cardinals met again in another conclave in northern Italy, and they elected a guy who he had been um, the bishop of Geneva, Robert of Geneva. Right. They elected him, and he took the papal name Clement VII. Now you have a scandal that's unprecedented in the history of Western Christendom. Think about it. Clement Seventh he's not the first anti-pope in the history of the West. You've had plenty of anti-popes before. What's different about this, though? This is an utterly unique situation. Why? Because it's the first time you've ever had two popes elected by the same guys. In the past, anti-popes had always been imposed from without. Anti-popes had always been puppets of emperors or kings or other factions. Now you have an anti-pope who is elected by the same college of cardinals that elected the first pope, and nobody knows what to do. The level of scandal and confusion that this causes is absolutely staggering. Think, it's not as simple as we might think it is. Right? We're used to, in this day and age, we're used to making private decisions about religion. Because we live in the post-Reformation world, the post-Enlightenment world, we live in the modern world. Right? And we live in a time of, of tremendous confusion, chaos, and shall we say diversity within the church and within the world. Right? And so you and I are used to making private decisions about religion. That's not how things were done in the Middle Ages. Now you have a situation where suddenly people have to make some sort of decision on their own about which pope to follow. This is going to sharpen the principle of private judgment in religion in ways that are going to have tremendous consequences for Europe, if you think about it. But what effect does it have in the immediate? In the immediate, where do people turn for guidance? I mean, if you're just Joe Lehman in the 14th century, you have absolutely no way of deciding which pope was the true pope. You don't know the details of, of what went on there. In fact, the, the, the one group of people that you'd think you could trust would be the cardinals themselves. And they're all saying, oh no, that election of Urban VI was totally null and void. Right? We, you know, that, that was no, no, this guy. That, this is the guy that we want. Right? And it's very, very confusing. Right? So what happens is, all right. What happens is kings and heads of state get to make the decision. Right? Kings and heads of state get to make the decision about which pope to follow. Right? And this, so this is it's it's the ultimate triumph in a sense of kings over the papacy. Right? In that now these competing papal candidates have to turn to the king of France, the king of England, the king of Aragon, the king of Navarre, the king of Castile, right? and say, please recognize me and not the other guy. All right. And so it, it basically does break down along national lines. Right? England, of course, supports um, Urban the Sixth. France supports Robert of Geneva, Clement the Seventh. Uh, the Spanish kingdoms also tend to support Clement the Seventh. Italy and Germany tend to support Urban the right? Sixth. So it, it basically divides Europe along national lines. Now the, the the national principle here, along with the principle of private judgment, is going to have a tremendous impact on the subsequent history of European Christianity. So, what happens next? You have all-out schism now. Clement VII takes up residence in Avignon, Urban VI continues to live in Rome, and when each pope dies, of course, his people gather to elect his successor. Obviously, Urban VI needs a new college of cardinals, since his original one has deserted him, so he appoints new, new cardinals. The scandal of two popes is something that shocks Western Christendom, and everybody's thinking of a solution. So private judgment is a principle that people are talking about now. Uh, Royal judgment becomes very, very important in this period. But another um, kind of institution that's going to become very, very important, that's going to step into the vacuum left by the papacy, is the institution of the university. Universities are going to step up and offer potential solutions here. The University of Paris offers three potential ways, three VA, for solving the schism. University of Paris says, we've got three options. On the one hand, there's the one that, that they call via cessionis. Secondly, you have via compromissi, And thirdly, you have what they call via concilii. What do these three things mean? The first one, via cessionis, this is the way of resignation. Right? Via cessionis. what this means is, Both guys can voluntarily resign, and then all the cardinals can get together and pick a successor in some agreed-upon way. That's not going to happen because neither guy wants to resign. Via compromissi means let's get an arbitrator that everybody can recognize, and the decision of the arbitrator will be honored, right? That's not going to happen because nobody can agree on an arbitrator, right? Via concilii, then, that becomes the popular solution, right? Via concilii means, how about an ecumenical council? Can a council solve this problem? And so what are we going to start seeing? We're going to start seeing in Western Europe, intellectuals toying with the idea that councils are actually superior to popes. This schism, this great schism of the papacy here in the 14th century, is what gives rise to the principle of what we call conciliarism. Conciliarism um, becomes a fever in Western Europe in this period. Everybody becomes obsessed with the, this idea. Maybe councils can actually supplant popes as heads of Christendom. So what actually happens? We've only got a few minutes left. Let's talk about it quickly. The way the schisma is resolved is interesting. Um, in the first place, people do seek to try the conciliarist solution. In 1409, uh, a group of cardinals and clerics gathered at Pisa and announced that they were having a council there at Pisa, and that that since councils are superior to popes, as they asserted, this council would represent the entire church, it would represent the universal church, it would depose both competing popes, excommunicate them, and elect a successor, a, a true genuine pope. So they did this in 1409. They elected a pope. He then died immediately, so they had to elect a successor, and they did. Right? So you, you have the Pisan line of popes that comes out of this 1409 council, uh, and the guy who, who becomes the, the Pisan pope, the second Pisan pope, was um, John XXIII, of course, as he is called. Uh, so now you have three popes instead of two. right? <laughs> so that's the thing. The, the conciliarist solution, right? although people talk about the, the conciliarist solution being something like, oh, the obvious way to do it, let's just all get together and have a council and talk about it. All it does is create more problems. Right? What ends up happening that solves the problem is a, a sort of a mixture of the council idea and the Via Cessionis. Right? What ends up happening is this. Uh, in 1414 the German King Sigismund, right, who was in line to, to receive the imperial crown, he, never, he doesn't actually receive the imperial title until much later in the 1430s, uh, but as, as king, King Sigismund decides, you know what, I'm going to behave the way that Christian emperors always behaved, And I'm going to call a council and preside over it, just like Constantine did. Uh, Sigismund kind of has a Constantine complex. And so in 1414, he calls a council to meet at the city of Constance. Um, Initially, very few people show up at Constance. But then finally, Sigismund comes there himself on Christmas Eve of 1414. And then people start pouring in. Hundreds of bishops, cardinals, abbots, high-ranking prelates, university men... People from all over Europe come pouring into Constance in 1415. Initially, Pope John XXIII, the the Pisan Pope, was presiding over the council. But then uh, something happened where he he basically realized that that the council wasn't going to just endorse him. So he tried to sneak out of Constance in the middle of the night. He was was captured. uh, And then he basically resigned his claim to the papacy. What made the council work at Constance was the fact that in 1415, the Roman Pope, the Pope of the Roman line, whose name was Gregory XII, he decided that the time had come for him to resign. And so Pope Gregory XII resigned in 1415 and gave the Council of Constance authority to elect his successor. Right? So in 1415, two of the three competing popes resigned their titles, Right, and most importantly for the subsequent history of the Catholic Church, which recognizes the Roman line as the true line, Gregory XII resigns his office and gives the council authority to elect his successor. Uh, the, the, the guy who was the holder of the Avignese papacy, Benedict XIII, uh, everybody just kind of starts ignoring him in this period. He had, he had already been driven from pillar to post, and he had made a lot of en- enemies. He had taken up residence on some island off the Catalan coast by this period, and so he, he's the pope of that island for the rest of his life. Uh, but everybody just kind of ignores him. And so the Council of Constance was able to elect a successor in 1417, Pope Martin V, who was able to reunite Christendom. So the papacy is saved at Constance, but the damage to the institution's prestige was lasting and profound. There we are.
2: Someone asked, what happens if uh, my wife has the baby uh, on Saturday morning? I told her she's not allowed to. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We have our third baby due on the 13th, and uh, the doctors are saying that uh, the baby's probably going to come a little early. So (laughs) she's ready to go. So. Um, okay, I'll just do a, a short Q&A if, if anyone has any questions. Yes? What was so exciting
0: about Avignon that the that whole line of popes wanted to stay there as opposed to coming back to Rome?
1: Well, what happened when, when Robert of Geneva was elected as the anti-pope, that's what you're talking about? During the season. um He initially was living in Northern Italy and then Urban VI sent an army up there. And uh, so he left. (laughs) Avignon was a great place because they had uh, a papal palace that had been built there. They had all kinds of facilities. They they had um, kind of all the infrastructure. Popes had been living there in the in the very 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 recent past. And so it it was it was kind of the intuitive thing to do to slip back in there. Um, But uh, later on, I mean, Benedict the Thirteenth, the Avignon Pope at the time of Constance, he. His relationship with the king of France had deteriorated to the point where where he had to retreat uh, to Aragon, and then he had to retreat to this island thing, and he called it Noah's Ark, but everyone else just called it the asylum. Uh, (laughs) He he was kind of crazy. Yeah, so it's interesting. Avignon was, it was the residence of that line of popes, um, not for the entire period of the schism. Uh, Sometime in the early 15th century, they were no longer resident there, so.
2: Brendan, I know you were, you were uh, avoiding a little bit of the issue about the Reunion Councils with the East, and you were okay. earlier on your, in, your, in the series, you were talking about the, uh, the patriarchs and, so, and yeah. so forth, and that kind of fell out, because I know Dr. Marshner is coming, but if you could give just a minute or two as an introduction to our series coming up, sure. or not our series, but our talk coming up on sure. the Great Schism.
1: Yeah, Dr. Marshner is going to talk to you about the events of 1054, apparently. Uh, and and it's, it's the Reunion Councils. And the Reunion Councils. So that, that'll be very, very interesting. You should all go. The, the reunion councils between East and West start occurring basically when people realize that there's a schism. Uh, it wasn't immediately in the aftermath of 1054 that people realized there was a, a generalized split between East and West. Uh, in fact, at the time of the First Crusade, um, Emperor Alexius had gotten in touch with Pope Urban and um, had asked for, for this army. Pope Urban's response was to, to ask Alexius if there was a schism. Now, we're talking 40 years after the events of 1054, and uh, Alexius said, I don't know, and Pope Urban said, uh, well, I don't know either, basically, and, and they, they, they couldn't figure out if, if there was a schism. So, the, the relationship between Rome and the Church of, of Constantinople was ambiguous. I mean, uh, Urban II asked the Emperor Alexius, do you guys commemorate me in your liturgy? And Alexius said, I don't know, let me check. And then he came back, and he said, actually, we don't. Does that mean there's a schism? And Urban said, I don't know. Uh, So uh, it's it's a much more ambiguous state of affairs than people often would like to treat it. Um, But certainly, by the 13th century, it's become very, very clear that, that the popes regard the Eastern Church as being basically in a state of disobedience to it, and the Eastern Church regards the West as being nothing less than heretical. Right, and and the, the arguments on which that rests, you'll, I'm sure, Dr. Marshall will uh, familiarize you with that. But but the basic issues that are most important are the the use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist, and of course the Filioque in the liturgy. Those are the, are the two issues that are the prime issues. Other things crop up: celibacy of the clergy, um, whether or not bishops should wear rings, whether you should fast on Saturdays. I mean, these sorts of things. But but all of those were ancillary issues. The big issues between the, in the minds of, of Eastern theologians were azimutism, the use of unleavened bread, and the filioque. Those are the things that always crop up. So the, the first reunion council, if one can call it that, is actually held in the east, not in the, in the west. The first reunion council occur, it occur, occurs during the period when the Latins are ruling Constantinople. There, there's a council at Nymphaeum in Lydia held under the patronage of the Byzantine emperor of Nicaea. And their, the Western Church was represented by some friars, some Franciscans and Dominicans there. And we have a whole transcript of that council. It, it was very uh, unfruitful, shall we say, but very interesting nonetheless. The, the great reunion councils that people think of are the one in Lyon in 1274, and then, of course, the Council of uh, Ferrara, Florence later on in, in the 15th century, which began in 1439. Uh, now, Lyon occurs because of a specific context. Lyon occurs because the, the Paleologan dynasty had retaken Constantinople from the Westerners. They didn't want the West to launch a crusade to take it back. So Michael VIII, Palaiologus was very, very interested in having a reunion of the churches to prevent that from happening, to prevent the papacy from endorsing a crusade to retake Constantinople. That's why Lyon happens in 1274. And, of course, it's a very dramatic event. The eastern clergy and their representatives sign on with everything. you know, They rejoin the western church, and then they get home, and, of course, the, the Byzantine clergy absolutely refuses to acknowledge it. They see this as a betrayal and everything. Um, Ferrara Florence is a little different. Ferrara Florence occurs because Constantinople is about to be captured by the Turks. And so for similar reasons, the emperor at the time, John VIII, wants a reunion council that can reunite the churches and then get some help from the West. Uh, So John VIII and many of the elites in the Byzantine Church travel to Italy and, and they attend this council, which actually marks, in some sense, a victory of the papacy over conciliarism in the Western context. Because at the time, Pope Eugenius IV um, was in a battle with uh, this, this council, a kind of rogue council that was sitting at Basel in Switzerland. And basically the council of Basel was saying to the eastern delegation, come meet us here because councils are, are where it's at. And the Pope was saying, no, 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 the papacy is where it's at. And the eastern church knew what the papacy was, but they didn't know what conciliarism was. And so they, they, they were not interested in dealing with the council of Basel. They were interested in dealing with the papacy. All right, because they basic thought, you're not dealing with someone serious unless you're dealing with the papacy. So they went to Eugenius IV's council, uh, and that was a major kind of, um, I guess, boost for papal prestige at the time. Uh, but the, the thing with these reunion councils, with Lyon and then with Florence, is that the eastern delegations, in, in both cases, will, will sign on and acknowledge that the western church is not heretical, western usages are not heretical at all. But then they go home, and uh, it, it, the, the union is not adhered to by the clergy, particularly the monastic clergy of the Byzantine Church. Now, Dr. Marshner will go into more details in this regard, but what what serves as kind of the ultimate breaking point, I would argue, is the Turkish conquest of Constantinople. Because after the Turkish conquest, the Turks are very, very deliberate in seeking out members of the anti-unionist faction and elevating them to positions of authority within the Patriarchate of Constantinople. So, that's all.
2: A little more than I was expecting, Brendan. (laughs) It's your fault.
1: fault.
0: (laughs) So, I have a question about this conciliarism because I thought I understood that now the Eastern Church believes that it is like a council, a gathering Mm -hmm. that is the highest. So, it sort of sounds Mm -hmm. like conciliarism to me. Right,
1: right. It's funny because you run into that. You run into people in modern times who say, like, oh, basically the, the Eastern Orthodox model is basically a conciliarist model. But that, that doesn't seem to have always been the case. Let, let's put it that way. It, it doesn't seem to have always been the case because in the 15th century, they're pretty weirded out by conciliarism. They don't know what to make of it. Uh, the idea that a, a bunch of guys getting together and just, just having a council without, without papal sanction, without any of the other patriarchates being invited, without an imperial sanction of some kind, that just doesn't look like a council to them. And that's the thing. Western conciliarism, it, it comes from the, this other kind of vision for how the church is structured. Marsilius of Padua expresses this in, in Defensor Pacis, basically the idea that authority comes from the people, the council represents the people, and the pope represents the council. So authority kind of flows upward. Right? And, and for the Eastern church, that, that's just is totally foreign. That's not the way that they view things. Um, so the Eastern view of what an ecumenical council is I'd say it's totally alien to this freakish, um, very historically conditioned conciliarism that crops up in the West. Does that make sense?
2: Well, Brendan, I think you answered all the questions. Congratulations. Uh, Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much for coming.
0: <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.